The following is a podcast from Livid, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.livitmke.org. Our sermon lesson this evening comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and it's got a ton in it, and there's no way we could possibly cover all of it. Um, but I want you to think about in terms of restlessness and God offering rest and what that really means for us as restless people, okay? Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 11. The writer of the Hebrews says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed entered that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. This is God's word. This week we're discussing the relationship between work and rest. Makes sense on a Labor Day weekend. Uh, But before we fully dive headfirst into that, I do want to say, you know, as one caveat, um, earlier today Pastor Jeske talked a little bit about um, those who maybe aren't working as much as they would like to work. Some of us might be in that camp. We're underworked, we'd like more work, um, and it's just not available to us at this moment. We're still looking for it. Some are in that camp. Some are also in the camp where they maybe kind of have to psych themselves up to work. We have a natural tendency to not really like working or to not work at all. Uh, And it's perhaps a spiritual issue. Some of us have a fear of failure, and it's easier to not try than to try and fail, and so we just don't ever maybe make as much effort as we should. Some of us are in that camp as well. But that's not really where we're going here today. Today, on Labor Day weekend, a weekend designed for intentional rest in our country, in a country that uh, struggles to some extent with workaholism, we want to recognize that it's important for us to have a proper theology of work and especially rest. So the the points that we're going to speak through here tonight are these. We're going to look at the human need for rest, 
the counterfeit to rest, the thing we go to when we think this will give us rest, but it really doesn't, and the only true rest, okay? The need for rest, the counterfeit to rest, and the only true rest that you or I can possibly find. First of all, the need for rest. Uh, let me read for you again a portion of just the last section of our lesson here tonight. Here, the writer of the Hebrews says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish. The operative word in our text clearly is the word rest. It shows up at, by my count at least eight times in our verses here. God's talking about rest and how we get rest and why we have a need for entering into rest. Why does he have to talk about this? Because very clearly, he's suggesting we are finite, limited human beings and we get tired and we get restless. If I were to ask you tonight, how many of you are struggling with fatigue right now? My guess is it'd be somewhere between 80 and 100%. You know, like everybody, who isn't struggling with some amount, if, especially if you're over 18 years of age because the energy just starts to dwindle and everything in life starts to feel like a chore and you have to psych yourself up for almost everything you do, even getting out of bed in the morning. Most of us are struggling with fatigue. There's a reason that coffee shops and energy drinks have been two of the most booming, growing industries in the past 20 to 25 years because we're all tired, we're all fatigued, we're all struggling to stay alert and pay attention. We all want but can't seem to find rest. Um, I, I kept running across a woman's name who was cited in, a, in a several different books and a couple of different sermons I heard, and her name is Judith Shulevitz. Uh, it's a Jewish woman who wrote a book called, I finally checked out this book that was being referenced, it's called The Sabbath World, Glimpses of a Different Order of Time. And there's some pretty incredible insights in it. First of all, here's what she says as a, just an excerpt from the book. She says, most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is to not work. This, this is what she's saying. It's pretty brilliant. Most people believe mistakenly that all you have to do to stop working is to not work. Not true. The inventors of the Sabbath, she says, understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You cannot simply downshift casually and easily. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional. And not even our group leisure activities can do for us what Sabbath rituals could once be counted on to do. And she goes on to say, religious rituals do not exist simply to promote togetherness. They do that, but there's certainly more reason than that. She says, they are designed to convey to us a certain story about who we are. The story told by the Sabbath is that of creation. God rested, and we now rest in order to honor the divine in us, to remind ourselves that there is more to us than our work, and the machinery of self-censorship must shut down. Two, stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. She's saying some fascinating things here, and I don't agree with everything that she says throughout the entire book, but she does, is saying some pretty brilliant stuff. Um, and the reason it's brilliant is because she's tapping into divine truth. See, Judith Shulevitz is a lapsed Jewish practitioner, and in the book she talks about how uh, she found herself 
in her adult life living uh, near New York City, she said on Friday evenings and Saturday mornings and Saturday afternoons, she would program for herself into her week certain uh, fun, relaxing social activities. And she thought, that'll get me to calm down, and that'll help me recharge, and that'll, and it was dinner dates, and it was brunches with friends, and it was walks at the park. And she said eventually she started to feel this restlessness inside of her. It wasn't taking care of it. And then she found herself doing something that she had vowed from childhood that she would never do again. She found herself re-entering into the life of a Jewish synagogue. She said, there, there must be something to this. God must have known what he was doing when he programmed the Sabbath day into the week. You know, we just came out of that series that we were doing uh, called Relax, Gospel Keys for Overcoming Anxiety and Depression. And we said how unusual and how strange it is that we as modern Western people have our basic needs met at historically unprecedented rates so that very few of us wonder exactly where our next meal is going to come from and whether or not we're going to have a bed to sleep in. Or things that historically are very unique that we have so much blessing and yet Statistics seem to suggest that we're just as stressed out, just as worried, just as restless as anybody else. Why? Because the places that we're looking for for rest aren't cutting it. There's probably a bunch of different reasons for that, but let me share with you a couple that I think are very clear with our particular time and space. Uh, see if some of this doesn't resonate with you in your own life and, and let's see what we can do about it, okay? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we live now in a culture radically shaped by technology. Technology, according to the Jetsons in the mid-20th century, was going to make life super easy. You know, you'd wake up and you'd step into like a machine that would brush your teeth and comb your hair and bathe you and clothe you and feed you and all that stuff and everybody's just happy all the time. Uh-uh, doesn't work like that. Technology actually doesn't make life easier. It makes life more complex. Technology doesn't lead us to work less. It actually enables us to work more. Now, again, a couple reasons I want to point out for that here tonight. Number one, technology makes us accessible, like all the time. You can work from anywhere, which means that we work everywhere. My guess is, as we go through our worship service tonight, many of you are going to have your phones chirp at you because somebody wants something from you right now, probably something work-related. And you have to remember to consciously shut off work because it's constantly coming at you. You have access all the time. Uh, I, I used to live in Rochester, Minnesota. I have some friends from Rochester, Minnesota here tonight. Uh, I had a friend that worked at IBM, one of the plants. Uh, IBM has a big plant in Rochester. And um, this guy was telling me how within the past decade, IBM's work philosophy has shifted from what they refer to as work-life balance to work-life integration. Here's what that means. Work-life balance means we used to expect you to come in, perform a hard day's work, and then go home and go to your family and go to your hobbies and have your weekend off and all of that stuff. That was work-life balance, not anymore. Now it's work-life Integration. Work-life integration, see, they made some concessions along the way. They said, you know what, it's not just casual Friday anymore, it's casual every day. You can wear whatever you want to work. IBM guys, by and large, from what I can tell, uh, the men and women, they wear jeans and, and t-shirts and their badge. 
and that's like that's the work outfit and they have their headphones on all day long listening to their music and a lot of times they don't even have to come into work you can work from home just get your work done but here's the catch we want you available all the time because we're a global industry we have meetings with people around the world time differences are there and we want access to you so we want you answering your email at 11:30 in bed at night if that's the case that's work-life integration we want you all the time and therefore if you're always available there's very little opportunity for a reprieve there's no time for rest uh, another one competition technology creates a global culture uh, this means that you're not only competing with local businesses, you're competing around the world. I know that this is affecting your business because this is affecting my work too. 30, 40 years ago, it would have been very odd that somebody would have come up, for instance, a, a Wells member come up to a pastor and say, Pastor, have you checked out anything recently by Andy Stanley or, or, or Tim Keller or Francis Chan or all these other big movers and shakers within evangelical Christianity? Or even from within Wells itself, uh, somebody come up and say, Pastor, have you checked out Mike, Mike Novotny's podcasts up in Appleton? Like, I haven't. I probably should do that at some point, shouldn't I? Yes, you're right. Um, but I, I get stuff like that all the time. Um, in fact, two of, two of evangelical Christianity's biggest darlings uh, a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll and Tulian Chavigian have both gotten out of ministry in recent history. And I'm convinced it's because they've collapsed, they've been crumbled under the pressure of competition and scrutiny. Now, if that's happening in American churches, I guarantee that's happening in your workplace. Constantly increasing demands, constantly increasing quotas. Somebody always wants something more because it's not just little mom and pop shop against Walmart, now it's you against the world. And that competition, if you, if you take a day off, you're going to fall behind. There's no opportunity for rest here, right? Um, here's another one. This is less a uh, technology one, uh, but it's certainly the, the status of our culture here today. The way you go about forming your identity. Uh, in a society where we've sort of lost the consciousness of God publicly, uh, people still need to find their identity somewhere, so where are they going to find it? By and large, most modern Western 21st century people are finding their identity by what they do, okay? Uh, by your profession, by your career, by your accomplishments. Most of us then try to, sh just naturally from birth, we're shaping our identities uh, by whatever we accomplish in life. Just look at whatever's on your wall. Whatever's on your wall is probably how you're shaping your identity right now. In the same way that you can look on a wall and there's a mirror there and you see yourself, the other things that are on your wall, that's where you see yourself too. If it's a diploma, or it's a beautiful picture on a family vacation, or it's a championship pennant, or it's a big deer head that you shove on your wall, which by the way, who would ever think to do that? <laughs> Cut off an animal's head, stuff it, and shove it up on my wall and tell everybody I did that. <laughs> I dominated that thing and there it is. You know, and I'll tell you the 45 minute version of how I did it. Um, why do we do that? Because we find our identity in those things. And if you're doing stuff to form your identity, it's never going to be enough. You're always going to be working for more. Okay? Uh, you'll never find any rest that way. And finally, this is not at all a political point. 
It's a point about work and rest. Uh, a, a lot of people make this into a political point, but the, the, the fact of the matter is simply this. Most people today would say uh, some income disparity is probably healthy because what it does is it tends to incentivize work. It incentivizes quality work. It incentivizes hard work. So some income disparity is actually a healthy thing. But the, the sort of indisputable facts, um, the, the facts that like the IRS uh, uh, returns are, are, are giving, is that in our country from like the 40s to the 70s, there was income disparity, but it was at about the same static rate. Okay. Um, and it, you know, factor in inflation, and it's still staying about the same. Since about 1980, those who are at the very, very, very top have sort of skyrocketed and accelerated beyond that, and those who are at the bottom have stayed kind of static with where they were at. All that means is that those who are at the very, very top are controlling a larger portion of the overall income and the overall wealth. Again, I don't want to make a political point about that. All I want to say is this. What that means socially is if you're at the bottom, because rates then rise, you have people who are now having to take two or three jobs just to pay for things like school, just to pay for things like rent, just to pay for things like childcare. So they're working constantly just to afford some of those things, but the people at the top are working 80 to 100 hours a week too because that's the requirements of those high-powered, high-paying jobs. And guess what? If you don't want to make the sacrifices to be in that position, I can guarantee there's somebody who's standing right behind you that's more than happy to take it from you. So what we've done is we've worked ourselves into a way that the people at the bottom and the people at the top are probably working way too hard. Nobody's finding any rest. And we're finally catching up and getting smart to the fact that this is incredibly healthy for us, again, think coffee shops and energy drinks, why everybody's struggling with fatigue. So what do we do? We look for a solution. Here's a counterfeit solution. Let me read for you again from verse 2 to 3 and see where we missed this. Uh, in verses 2 to 3 it says, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard, he's talking about people in the past, God's people in the Old Testament, who weren't able to truly enter into rest. The message they heard was of no, valuable, no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we, who have believed, enter the rest. So what's the counterfeit? In a restless society, we try to figure out a solution to this, so what do we typically do? We program things like vacations into our lives. Let's take an all-inclusive getaway you know, to uh, uh, Jamaica or whatever else. Or let's, you know, just go and visit family for a little while. Let's take a nap. Let's take a day off and go to the beach. Nothing wrong with any of these things. These are all blessings from God. But they're not going to give you the rest that you're looking for. When was the last time you went and visited family and came back and said, I feel totally re-energized? <laughs> you come back from visiting family and you think, I need a nap. Why is it that we come back from our vacations thinking, I need a vacation? Because you never got the rest that you were hoping to find on that vacation because you were looking for rest in the wrong spot ultimately. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews here clearly is saying that the rest that we crave is much more profound than just a little sun and a little extra sleep. It's a rest that can only be claimed when the good news is combined with faith. 
Lacking deep soul rest is the reason why many of us are working unrelentingly, why we're so tired, and why vacations aren't recharging our batteries. The writer of the Hebrews goes on to say, but for if anyone enters God's rest, that person also now will rest from their works. Here's what's happened. Let me summarize this sort of in a nutshell. God created the world and he then rested. And he invited humanity to share in that rest. And the gospel says that that rest comes by grace, not by works. But as our society has gotten to the point where we sort of reject organized religion more and more and more, we haven't gotten any religious, less religious. We've just got less religious about organized religion. You see, because if you're wired for God, that's never going to change. We're still wired for religious relationship with God, but if we get rid of the public aspect of that, we don't get less religious, we get religious about other stuff. We've started to get religious about our professions and our accomplishments. We've redefined salvation and identity in terms of accomplishment, and the only way to truly get there is to work and work and work. And therefore, not entirely unlike the Pharisees and all who have been self-righteous uh, going back to Jesus' day, we're working relentlessly in order to try to earn what we perceive as salvation and it's making us so very, very tired all the time. Um, there was an episode of Seinfeld years ago. My wife tells me I use too many Seinfeld references, which is probably true, but you've got to go with what you know. Uh, there was an episode that Kramer thought he somehow, he always has these harebrained schemes, and he thinks that you can just rest, you can take a 15-minute nap every three hours. And that will make you very highly efficient and you'll be able to do stuff all throughout the day. And he nearly dies several times from exhaustion because he doesn't understand really how sleep works. And I don't fully understand how sleep works either, but I know enough to know that there's different sleep cycles and sleep patterns. And there's this thing like REM sleep. And that's the sleep that you have to actually enter into in order for your body to actually rest. That's the sleep that when the body recuperates and heals itself, you have to enter into that deep sleep. And here's the point. If you're trying to earn your identity in life through all of your hard work, all the naps and all the vacations in the world are not going to energize you. That's like giving a cough drop to somebody with pneumonia or a Band-Aid to somebody with a bullet wound. You have a deeper issue. You have a craving for rest for your soul. That's the real issue. Now, brings us to the last point, the only true rest. Um, the argument that the writer of the Hebrews here is making is this. God created the planet, and it's a, it's a kind of a complicated text, so let me just kind of break it down into four steps. God created the planet, he created mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. He invited them to come and enter into his rest. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they became restless wanderers on the earth. And so did subsequent humanity. God stuck with them and promised them rest in a promised land. And he sent the deliverer to help that happen. 
It was Moses first, and Moses' successor was a guy named Joshua, but the Israelites weren't ready for it there either. They didn't truly enter into rest, and so God sent them one who was even greater than Joshua, God's son, Jesus. Let me unpack that for a second. We read earlier from Genesis 2 that God created the planet, and then on the seventh day he rested, and we said when God rests, that's not like God taking a nap. Because repeatedly throughout the Bible it says that God doesn't get tired. So it can't be just exhaustion, and it can't even be just inactivity, like he was just doing nothing. Uh, for instance, in, in Isaiah 66, 1, it says that God's throne is his resting place. His throne, the place that he rules from, is how he's resting. So what God's rest must be is it must be some way of him ruling while at the same time saying nothing left needs to be done. All which is essential to accomplish has already been accomplished, and it is very, very good. So Adam and Eve come along, and at first, in the middle of paradise, they experience that rest. But Satan somehow convinces them that there's something more, a greater life that they can earn for themselves. They break the planet, and they become restless wanderers. God's children became slaves in this world and to this world, literally in Egypt, they became enslaved. But God heard their cry for mercy and he sends to them a deliverer. Moses comes, frees them from their slavery. They enter out into the desert. The one who comes after Moses, the subsequent deliverer, takes them to the threshold of the promised land. But guess what? They still really aren't ready to enter into God's rest. They still want to do things their own way. They still rebel against God. And therefore, while they're no longer slaves in Egypt, they're still slaves. They're slaves of this world. They're slaves to their own sinful devices. And at that point, you think God probably should just give up on them. But a God of grace and so much undeserved love says, no, you couldn't fulfill that, that old kind of two-way covenant relationship we had. I'm going to give you something even better this one-sided covenant of incredible grace through an even greater Joshua. It's really hard to see this in the, in the English language, but the word for the name for Joshua and the name for Jesus are actually the exact same names. In the, in the biblical language, it's the anglicized version of Yeshua in Hebrew and in Greek. And what the writer of the Hebrews, I think, is very clearly trying to tell us is that while Joshua tried to get your ancestors into the promised land and they fell short, one greater than Joshua has come and it's an eternal rest in the ultimate promised land. Look at what he says here at the end of the text. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about a later day, another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. When you believe by faith that Jesus has accomplished everything necessary for your salvation, that he has paid the debt for every single one of your sins. That in living a perfect life, he has gifted to you his absolute righteousness. 
then you'll be able to rest because then the pressure in life is off. You don't need to earn salvation when you already have it in Christ. And remember, we said rest. When God rested, it wasn't inactivity and it wasn't exhaustion. His rest meant a rule. His rest meant a satisfaction in knowing that nothing more needs to be done. All which is essential has been fully accomplished. And in this case, since it's been accomplished by God's son, Jesus, it is very good and it is finished. So now the pressure in life is off. You don't have to earn anything and you're playing this life with house money to God's glory. And when you realize that he earned your salvation by laying his life down for you, the natural way we respond to that is to lay our lives down to honor him, to his glory. And when you realize that, and to the degree that you realize that, it doesn't matter whether you're on vacation or you're working, whether you're awake or whether you're sleeping, because when you realize that, you will be able finally to truly rest. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Many of us are very, very fatigued. We're stressed out about a life that we're trying to control, uh, a life that we think we have to accomplish something extraordinary in in order to find our identity. Let us rest by finding our identity, by being redeemed children of God through your blood. You have given us everything necessary, and that doesn't mean we, we stop living. It doesn't mean we stop being productive. It means that everything we do, we're trying to be productive to your glory, not ours. And then and only then will we be able to find the true rest for the soul that we've been craving. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.